0: Fathers, we we come before you this morning. We come in humility, Lord, in humility, because it is true that there is none good, no, not one. We come thanking you, Lord, that whereas any of us, would have never thought that you, our God, would die Mm -hmm. in our place. Mm -hmm. Father, let us consider that this morning. Mm -hmm. And let's consider it in the context of the fact that you are outside of time. Father, so from the beginning, uh, you're working in your son to bring us salvation has always been your plan. And 10 billion years from now, we will continue to look at it. It is interesting to us, Lord, that we have the opportunity to live in that time when all things are being brought together to be tested uh, according to that which is wrought in the cross of Christ. For there is no name that is named Mm -hmm. in heaven or earth or under the earth except the name of Jesus Christ where we might be saved. And to all this is to the glory of God and to the glory of the Father and the son and the holy ghost thank you for these who here today may you uh, search our hearts during the time of remembrance of the body that was broken and the blood that was shed May we take that opportunity, as Paul has told us in 1 Corinthians 11, to examine ourselves. And in that way, we can avoid uh, chastisement because we thank you, Lord, that you, you never wink our just simply disregard Mm -hmm. our spiritual failures, but that you were ever busy bringing us out of the miry clay and setting us uh, on the rock in whose name, Jesus, we pray today. Amen. If you're turned to Isaiah fifty three, just a little instruction, Uh, as most of you know, both the Old and the New Testament were not written with punctuation. There were no periods to sentences. There were no paragraphs. There were no chapters. There was simply from the very beginning, for example, of Isaiah, there were the words with no spaces, run one upon the other. And then about 400 years ago, men divided the scripture into verses and chapters. I think they did a pretty good job. However, some would agree that likely Isaiah 53, very well should have started with verse 13 of chapter 52 because there we find a description in verse 14 of chapter 52, a description of the appearance of Christ, uh, after his, uh, Travail in his judgment, in the scourgings, in the beatings, uh, whereby one looking upon him could no longer not recognize him but almost to the point where it was difficult to tell that he was truly a man. Moving into Isaiah 53. Let's just read through it, it's not real long remember what we're reading comes from the Holy Spirit moving in the prophet Isaiah to uh, some 700 years before Christ to give those who were the targeted recipients of this word to give the Jews an uh, account of the future whereby their Messiah not only would be rejected, but he would be crucified. It's interesting to note that crucifixion was never uh, used as a Jewish form of execution. And during the time of this writing, crucifixion, this, as we are told by historians, was something that was not known in the in the entire world, for it was the uh the uh, Medes and the Persians who began the practice of persecution. And that would be after the time that Isaiah wrote this. And the Romans simply mimicked that type of execution, uh, picking it up from the Medo-Persia empire that had come before them. And so even the very nature of the payment under the weight of the sins of the world that Christ offered up uh, is prophesied hundreds of years before it was ever used in the world. And so Isaiah starts out in Isaiah 53:1. Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? You know, I think I'll just take this verse at a time. One would think in reading verse 1, and rightly, that the message of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world has never been easily or widely received by men. Now I like to I like to consider the words of Paul in the first chapter of First Corinthians. And here's here's what Paul says starting in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. We read about that in Romans chapter 1, for having seen that there is a God, every man became vain in their own imaginations and began to worship idols and practice all sorts of debauchery before God. For after the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Uh, I think the Lord kind of puts us preachers in in a place where we ought to understand that preaching is probably one of the worst forms of communicating truth. To listen to someone, just speak oh you know for some period of time, uh, you know we might do better with a, a book with lots of illustrations and so on and so on. But God chose preaching. Why? He chose preaching because it is a weak form of helping people to come to full understanding of a subject. Therefore, it always is the strategy of God for his glory to to pick the weak things of the world and to use them to confound the wise. And he does that in all sorts of ways. Uh, One has to do with the fact that it is not those who are uh, popular. It is not those who appear to be so gifted uh, in dealing with the word of God, but it is those whom men would not consider valuable to bring the word of God. And so, my friends, I want you to see that in our churches, bringing celebrities, and Hollywood stars, and great football players, and those in other sports, and the, the, the people in the world that have great following and notoriety, That does not fit in God's program of bringing glory to himself. Those people already have glory. And that is why those uh, professing believers come to hear them because they regard them as something to be esteemed. But the message of the cross is, is best preached by the humble. It's best preached by those who are unknown. And the work of the Spirit of Almighty God is best left to those whom the world will not consider to be valuable. You want to read about that? You go to the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 11, and you will find that the esteemed of God wandered in the earth, wearing goat skins and sheep skins and having nothing, uh, living in the catacombs, uh, fearing for their lives, unwashed um uh, with no possessions, unknown in the world. And it is those people in the book of Hebrews, and the only place I know of that speaks regarding believers in this way, God's saying in Hebrews 11 that these people who were wandering and unknown and absolutely destitute and having no worldly capability, that they were the people of whom the world was not worthy. And I don't know about you, but I will flee from that which would lift me up as successful human being in the earth for any reason, and particularly for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. For God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the wise, and those things that are easily seen he has set them aside and he has created of his own power out of nothing that which he intends to use (laughs) to bring his gospel and so paul said in first corinthians chapter one For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Why? For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom but we preach Christ crucified. And that's what Isaiah 53 is all about. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, he's a stumbling block. Now I'm going to just refresh your memories. Why is it that to the Jews, the preaching of the Savior and him crucified, because that's how Paul preached him. I preached Christ and him crucified. The Jews looked at that and they turned away because the purpose of the cross was that God himself would bear the burdens of the uh, chastisement and the punishment of sin he will take it on himself and for a Jew that was that was unacceptable because they espoused their own righteousness and no man in I'm using that in a generic way. No man can come to Christ and hope to be saved, and in fact, to be saved. He cannot come believing that he, he carries with him anything that God needs or any merit of his own whereby God should receive him as righteous into his kingdom. God has to break every believer from the pride of sin, the pride of life, He has to break everything that he uses, and we will uh, take an emblem today of the bread. Christ broke it, and the truth is that Christ breaks everything that he truly can use. It is a requirement. Mm -hmm. If you were suffering today and it's okay to suffer as a Christian because it means that God, even to a greater degree, is going to bring you to be used for His glory. And if that is His will, mm-hmm. then I say, Lord, let the suffering come but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block unto the Greeks foolishness but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God and so the Jews stumble over Christ because they were not willing to recognize their sin. And the gentiles who were wise and the philosophers and all the rest they they just considered this whole idea of substitutionary sacrifice for sin. They Looked at that and said, This does not make any sense. It's foolish. Uh, I've confessed before, but I'll say it again. I had been baptized as a 12 year old, I had attended uh, church. You know, most of my life, but when I was about 23 and the old man explained the gospel to me, that was the first time I understood why Christ died on the cross. I understood. Yes, I had never understood. How could I sit in a congregation all my life mm-hmm. and not understand that? So, so what? Christ died on the cross. Well, I can only say that the Holy Ghost is is the great communicator Mm -hmm. to the heart of sinners, whereby he calls and draws us to Christ. But the first thing he must do is bring us to see that Christ bore our sins, not just part of them. He bore them all on that cross so many years ago. To me, I tell you, it was foolishness. But then in the the blinking of an eye, I understood. And I remember saying, why didn't anybody ever explain this to me? And I still find those people out there who don't really know why Christ died. They attend church they say they're believers, they have no idea why Christ died. And raised from the dead, for they both go together. And when we say Christ crucified, we must also recognize that he rose from the dead. And so who hath back to Isaiah 53, who has believed our report Who is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he, that is Christ, shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form or comeliness when we shall see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. Several things there. The root coming up out of the dry ground was Christ springing up in Israel, who did not trust their God. Uh, Long before, uh, it it was 400 years before Christ arrived, that God did not provide a prophet in Israel. Because he had basically concluded that they were never going to listen. And so he sent his son, finally. And he also was rejected. We should understand. All my life I have watched, you know, the movies, uh, and, you know, they're not bad, but the movies, you know, for example, the greatest story ever told. And uh, I don't even know what the name of Mel Gibson's movie was. Uh, it was probably The Passion or or uh, The Crucifixion, because I, I never wanted to watch it. And in every... Every of man, every attempt at man to depict the visual form of the Lord Jesus Christ, we always find him as a very attractive man. Uh, he just, you know, you looked at him and you thought, "This man has something going." And that's the way we are in the flesh. We like to, uh, we want our idols to be beautiful. Uh, and we, we go to great extent to, to make everything surrounding uh, our worship to be in man's eyes to be beautiful. We make the inside of our churches as much as we can afford beautiful. Uh, we want we want when individuals enter there by the fact that their senses are moved when they see, uh, you know, the lavish and the uh, uh, the, the symbolic portions of our sanctuaries to even, like a mural, tell a story. And we look at it and we say, this is beautiful. But my friends... We don't come to Christ because he is pleasant for our eyes to look upon. We come to Christ because by the Holy Ghost, we see what we are meant to see when we are given eyes to see it and we hear what we are meant to hear when god gives us the ears to hear it and christ according to isaiah 53 was not extraordinary as a handsome man there wasn't anything about how he looked that drew us to him and In our culture, and I think always, men have been drawn to that which pleases the senses. But Christ does not come to touch our senses. He comes to touch our soul, whereby we will think rightly. We will feel rightly, and we will act rightly. And so, there is no beauty that we should desire him. It's more than that. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And then I believe uh, we began to see a picture of some of the things that occurred on the cross. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried us our sorrows yet we did esteem him the only thing that those who should have known him on that night that he was betrayed the only thing that they should have esteemed was the fact that he was God come in the flesh full of goodness and righteousness. But what did they really, what did they really desire to be uh, his end? Not the reception of Christ, but the rejection of Christ. And therefore They believed he was a blasphemer and that uh, he should be killed. And the Roman way was by the cross. But in reality, that one which they thought they ought to dispose of was wounded there on the cross and before in his beatings and lashings. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. That's that's an interesting... I, I, I can't get by that one without bringing up the difference between uh, transgressions and iniquities. And what I'd like for you to know is that transgressions is a word used to describe the breaking of a known rule. And so uh, you will read in the New Testament, that uh, sin is, is not accounted for uh, except there be a law. Nevertheless, sin reigned between Adam and Moses. So a transgression is when we break the law. but then it says he was bruised for our iniquities. What does that mean? Well, is iniquity sin? Yes, but iniquity goes beyond sin. Iniquity is absolute, an absolute departure from from the rule of god in our lives iniquity is truly the freedom of the flesh to do anything it wants to do and more and more the age in which we live is is teaching from the very earliest age that we we have the capacity to imagine that God is in us and that the nature of our imagination about what he requires uh, makes anything acceptable and so this in a way is idolatry so the chastisement of our peace was upon him peace is a valuable thing my friend To be able to recognize the lack of peace in our lives I think is a blessing. When we come to a place whereby our consciences are not active and we are absolutely made friends with our sin and our rebellion. And we are not moved by any kind of guilt that we have failed the one who created us. Those people would be better off if they were miserable, whereby they could seek the remedy of God, but some come to the place where they are so hardened and their conscience is seared as with a hot iron that they cannot even contemplate the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the, again, there's the word iniquity. That is like a license to sin. Has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Mm-hmm. Some of your Bibles will translate that word lawlessness. But it, let me tell you this, the word lawlessness in Greek has nothing to do with the law. It means basically to be a law unto yourself and and uh, has to do simply with the idea that Paul expressed in Romans chapter five and six, when he said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And that was, some people came to that conclusion. Since, since uh, it gives glory to God to save me from sin, then the more I sin, the more glory God gets. And Paul said, uh, some say that and then he said god forbid how can you who are dead to sin live any longer in it and so unfortunately we are living in an age and it has always been a problem but i think it's it is a growing problem today that that young ones being taught are being taught basically that they have their own righteousness and that they have the prerogative to make up their own God. And of course, when that is done, what really has happened is that we become our own God. We become gods in our own minds. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. If you have read the accounts of Christ before the Sanhedrin, of Christ before Pilate twice, and Christ before Herod, you will find that there is only one time that he responds to a question. And that was a question from the Sanhedrin to whom it was not legal for one to remain silent. And so it was a matter of the Mosaic law, that when the Sanhedrin questioned you, that you were not allowed to remain silent. And so what was the question that the Sanhedrin asked? And they said, is it true? Are you the Christ? And so Jesus answered, saying, well, you say that I am. And that was his answer. And so, interestingly enough, Pilate put the sign on the top of his cross in three languages, the King of the Jews. Interesting. So his mouth as a lamb was shut. He did not complain, he did not try to bring uh, an argument for his innocence to those who were judging. Some would say, and I would agree, that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was planned step by step by God. Yes. What happened to Christ during that time from his his uh, internment Mm -hmm. uh, until he died on that cross every detail was the will of God and was God's plan and therefore as I said I think last year we do not do well if we believe that Christ was the victim of evil men. Christ was not a victim. Christ all through his ministry and definitely during the crucifixion was in charge of the whole process. And the Jews of course, for the most part, had no idea what they were doing. And so he was taken from prison and from judgment who shall declare his generation for he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. Well, I think there's an answer to that who can declare his generation in that the fact that he is the firstborn among many brethren. And there will be undoubtedly millions of human beings that will be of that seed even according to the promises of Abraham and according to that uh, power of an endless life that he provided. He was cut off out of the land of the living. Of course, it was Christ who said... uh, if a grain of wheat falls to, or corn falls to the ground it must die before it can bring forth fruit and that's exactly that is true for every christian that was true for the life of christ it must needs be he said that i that the son of man be be taken uh by the Jewish hierarchy, that he be uh, mistreated, that he be hung on a cross, and that he die. That was the plan. And so, uh, in the end, he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. Now what's being referred to in verse 9 is the truth that Joseph of Arimathea came to Pilate after Christ had been taken down off the cross, not yet entombed, and he begged Pilate that he be given his body that he might bury him. And it was needful, and so we can only, we can only surmise, but under Jewish law, the one who claimed a body had to be a relative. And so some think that uh, there was a relationship, according to the flesh, such as being an uncle or, or, uh, you know, some kind of relative that Joseph of Arimathea uh, did have some uh, connection with Christ in the flesh. He also was a man who could walk into the palace of the sovereign over Israel and get an audience. And so this man was well-to-do, well-known, and wealthy. And so Christ, not having a tomb of his own, certainly made his grave with the wicked and with the rich. I heard somebody say recently that when Joseph Arimathea came to Pilate and Pilate began to object regarding allowing Christ to be placed in those those brand new tombs that Joseph had made for his own family that Joseph said, well, he's only going to need those for the weekend. <laughs> so think about that. Uh, I don't know if Joseph knew that or not. I hope he did. So it pleased the Lord, verse 10, to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. And I see my time's getting short, but I do not want to leave this point uh, behind. We make great to-do about the physical suffering on the cross, the nails, the agony of hanging and not being able to breathe, uh the all of the mistreatment in the in the cat of nine tails whipping and the thorns in the crown and those who hit Christ in the face uh, whereby he became unrecognizable. Uh, And then the the toil of of carrying that cross um, and finally being nailed to it and, and lifted up between heaven and earth. We make such a big deal of that. Now, my understanding of the Mel Gibson movie is that was pretty much where the, where that movie uh, brought people to, to be horrified by that kind of a death. But let us not forget, in verse 10, we see that it pleased the Lord to bruise him, yes, he hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. And we need to understand that when Christ hung on that cross, The scripture tells us that he bore our sins in his body. But here it is telling us that, and and probably to a greater degree, the suffering of the very essence of his humanity and as an individual, which he was, He was very, very man and very, very God. That Christ, as only God could know, would suffer that which we could not see. He suffered the humiliation, yes. He suffered particularly the fact that God turned his face away from him. Mm -hmm. And for all eternity, he had been in absolute perfect communion with the Father and the Father left him there alone. And so his real cry that that is most meaningful is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, And so let us understand, Some of us, and and every person at some point in their life, and maybe more than one, will suffer greatly. Not in their body, but will suffer in their soul. Nobody can necessarily look at you and tell you that that is what is wrong. Uh, It is it, when we are suffering in our soul, there's no doctor. There's there's no medicine. There is simply the endurance of that suffering. And this will occur. This is an opportunity. When we began to feel alone and we began to feel that everything uh is gone wrong. This is the time when we can draw near to God, because He, the person of Christ, knows exactly how we feel. And so take your burden to the Lord, and He will give you rest. So God made his soul, not just his body, an offering for sin. He shall see the travail of his soul. See it? He says it twice. And shall be satisfied. Who's being satisfied? That's where the the word propitiation that we get in the New Testament on uh, two or three occasions has uh, in its meaning the satisfaction that the cross of Christ produced in regard to God maintaining the fact that he was just. Mm -hmm. And so if you go to Romans chapter three you will read those words that the crucifixion occurred so that god might be just and the justifier of those who trust in the lord jesus and so you must understand and i've said this before i'll say it again today one of the elements of the cross. Yes, we see the mercy of God. We see the goodness of God. We see the love of God. But please do not miss that the cross was the justice of God. And in that, it was the justice that you and I would have had to bear the weight of for eternity had God not created a body for his son, whereby the sins of humanity could be laid on him. And so the Lord saw the travail of his soul. By his knowledge shall my righteousness My righteous servant justify many, that is Christ, who is our justification. For we shall, for he shall bear, there we find that word again, our iniquities. Therefore, will I divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out, here we have it again, his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. That is referring to the fact that On the cross, Jesus looked at those who were raging against him, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. There was, there's something that could be said about that, but in the interest of time, here we have just briefly discussed the cross. I would recommend to each one of you, you make a note in your Bible, Psalm 22, and you go back to that and you read even before Isaiah about the sufferings of Christ. Is there another book in the universe like the Bible? No. No. 40 authors over 1,500 years or 2,000 years putting together a cohesive volume that brings us in one direction, to trust God Mm -hmm. and be saved by him.